Our goal in this series and the attributes of God, how foolish this is <laughs> to talk about God in this way and who He is, but He has ordained this foolishness of preaching and study that we might learn about what He has revealed. And our, our goal in this series of looking at the character of God, the attributes of God, it is to try and elevate our thoughts about God. We want to let our thoughts about God and who He is go higher than they are. But it, the goal isn't mere theological facts and filling our head with knowledge because there are some of the greatest some of the greatest Bible scholars in the world when it comes to knowledge of what the Bible says are, are atheists. Just having head knowledge about God is not, it's not understanding God. Our goal is to let our thoughts about God go higher than they are today and to try and think of Him as nearly as possible as He really is, but also, as Proverbs 22.17 says, to apply our hearts to the knowledge of God. So we want to grow in our understanding of God and apply our hearts to Him. I, I don't want today to just let this be some theological seminar about talking about facts about God and how He's revealed Himself, but rather that as we talk about who God is, that we would love Him more. We'd be in awe of Him more. We would fear Him more. And that it would transform us and have an actual impact practically day to day on our lives. So we're studying attributes of God between now and, and, and through Easter Sunday, Lord willing. Some of these attributes that we talk about will be much easier to understand than others. So for example, if we're talking about the grace of God, that is an attribute that God shares with us in that we not only can receive His grace, but we can be a conduit of His grace to others. But some of the attributes of God are much more difficult to understand because they are attributes that are things that God doesn't share with others. And today is one of them. This is, I believe, the highest of all of God's attributes, if, if I can say that. Please don't believe we're dividing God into different parts. We're not. He's not part justice, part love, part grace, part wrath. He's one being. Holistic. But the supremacy of God, that attribute that He is supreme and He is over all things, that attribute is critically important and a foundation to everything else that we talk about with God in the, in the weeks to come. So that's where we're starting our journey, the supremacy of God. If you're a note taker and you have one of our worship guides, if you'll pull that out and we're going to do some fill in the blanks as we do, let me pray for us in this time. One more, uh, one more prayer for us. God, I ask that you would help us to worship today in your word. I ask God that you would please reveal yourself to us. Father, you have ordained the foolishness of preaching, but this is foolish, God. And I, I ask, O Lord, that you would be our help and our guide today, that you would reveal yourself to us and that we would know more about you, but also we would incline our hearts to that knowledge, God, that we would be transformed by it. 
may anyone in this room, God, who doesn't know you be saved today. And those of us who are who belong to you, may you sanctify us, God, today in our knowledge and our understanding of you. Protect me, God, from saying anything that is unhelpful. But I pray that you would put your word and your words about your word on my lips today, God, that that it may be helpful to your church in Jesus name. Amen. Here's this life truth. God is not like us. God is unlike any creature or anything we can imagine. God is not like us. David said this in 1 Chronicles 17 in the passage that that was just read a moment ago by Eric and he says this in in verse 20, "Lord, there is no one like you." That is a very simple statement, but it is profound. Please hear this. God is not like us. And for the unsanctified heart, God is not how we want Him to be. We have no category of understanding or thought that can get us to who God is. Because we can only think as creatures. And He is not a creature. He is the Creator. He is not in the same category we are, just on a higher plane. He is completely and utterly different than us. He does not think like us. He does not act like us. He does not judge by what we think is fair or right. We are not His judge. He is ours. He is not like us. There is but one God, David says, and there is no God besides our God. He's unlike any creature. He is unlike anything you can imagine. He is not the greatest of the greatest superheroes that we see in movies or in books. He is unlike anything that we can conjure in our minds. And apart from Him and Him revealing Himself to us, we would have no ability to understand anything about God. It's been said by some that the, the best argument for the supremacy of God is to, to point out the infinite distance that separates Him from His creatures. So the more that you can understand how different God is from us, then the more you can understand how supreme God is. And so I want us to look at three things this morning. Three ways in which God is completely and utterly different from us. This is not the only three ways, obviously, but three ways that I want us to think about. And I pray that in us considering the uniqueness of God in these three ways, that we would understand His supremacy. Number one, in your notes, God is eternal. God is eternal. Now, if you if you're been a believer for a while, you've grown up in church, been to Sunday school, things like that. It's a pretty simple statement, right? Absolutely. God is eternal. But now dive into what that means. God has no origin. God does not have a beginning. 
there was never a moment where God didn't exist and then He started existing. He's eternal. When the Bible says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God, God was there, He was in the beginning. In the beginning is talking about the beginning of time as we know it. And who created time? God. Before time existed, God existed. He is eternal. He is not in any way hindered by time. He is not in any way constrained by time. He stands outside of time. And you and I have no concept of what that is like. When Revelation 4 says, by your will all things exist, that includes time. Time is something God created for the universe. Time is something God created for the heavens. Time is something God created for the earth and for you and for I. You, you and I ask the question, where did God come from? Because as creatures, that's the only way we know how to think. We live in an existence where there is a beginning and an origin to everything, and there is an end to everything. So our mindset is, well, of course there has to be a beginning. Of course God couldn't have just always existed. He has to have some moment that He started. We think like that because that's the only way we know how to think. Because for creatures, everything has a starting point and an ending point. God is not a creature. He's completely different from us. So Psalm 90 verse 2 puts it this way, Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. All illustrations are infallible, are, are fallible, but C.S. Lewis put it this way, If you can imagine in your mind a sheet of paper that goes infinitely in that direction and infinitely in that direction. This sheet of paper just goes both directions, never stops. And you were to take a marker and you were to put a little line on that paper. That would represent time. Just that line. And just like a line begins and ends on that vast expanse of paper that we're imagining... As that line begins and ends on that paper, time begins and ends in God. God is the expanse. He is the eternity. And time is something that He created, but He exists outside of it. Which means, right now, God is present at the beginning of everything. And right now, God is present at the end of everything. He's not living things out moment by moment, day by day, the way we do. He's there. He sees all of it, and the Bible says He declares the end from the beginning. He's taking history where He has decided for it to go. Time is a thief for everyone except God. Everything else started, everything else will end, but God exists from eternity to eternity. He has supremacy. Secondly, God is eternal. God is self-sufficient. 
God is self-sufficient. Everything that is created needs something. Everything that is created needs something to continue to exist. Everything that is created needs something to be successful in its existence. Need is a creature word. Every creature needs. No matter how we may fight against it, no matter how much it frustrates us, everything about our life from the moment we are born is shaped by things we have no control over. There's a few things in our life here or there that we can, you know, we, we, we take responsibility for, and yes, we have influence, but so much of our life, when you think about it, it is completely out of your control. Your life is shaped by factors that you can't do anything about. And that's frustrating to us because independence is something we strive for from almost the moment we're born. As soon as we start growing up, we're trying to be independent. And you know what? In our society, being independent is how we measure maturity. In our society, the way we think about it is the more independent you are, the less needs you have, the more mature you are, the more you've achieved. And the way that we understand mortality is when we start losing our independence. When we get older and we start having to depend on others more and more and more, and we realize how mortal we are. Nothing that I just said applies to God. Nothing. He has no needs. He needs nothing to exist. He needs nothing to be successful in His existence. John chapter 5, verse 26 Jesus says, the Father has life in Himself. You and I don't. Everything about our life, we depend on something. You cut off our food, you cut off the sun, you cut off water, you cut off air. We cease to exist. God has life in Himself. Everything turns to something in order to live except God. He exists completely by His own nature. There is no factor anywhere that shapes God is, God's existence. There is nothing outside of His control that's going to determine how things go. God didn't start this whole thing, plan some stuff, spin the world, and say, okay, well, I hope it goes the way that I want it to go. He is the determining factor. Nothing shapes Him or His existence. When, I, I don't know if this was actually taught to me. I think it was. But I remember in Sunday school, in a little Baptist church on the other side of Center Point, I remember walking out of Sunday school believing that the reason God created all of us was because He wanted fellowship. He, he wanted community. I don't know if I used the word lonely, but God didn't want to be alone. Completely untrue. Even if we were to say, God created us because He had a need for worship, 
We were created to glorify Him and to worship Him, which is true, because He had a need for that. Completely untrue. He has no need. Jesus said and talks of in the New Testament before the foundations of the earth were laid, God was glorified. And He was in community and unity the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, with love for one another. God did not create anything He created because there was a need for it. God created everything out of His sovereign will and His good pleasure. He doesn't need anything from His creation, and by definition, He can't need anything from His creation. If He needed anything, He would not be God. He would not be supreme. God has no needs. He's completely self-sufficient. Life is in God. He has the supremacy. And number three, God is unthreatened. God is unthreatened. What I mean by that, as creatures, you and I constantly face threats. I, I can't dive into this, but let me just put it this way. I think... If, if you really were to drill down on it, every anxiety that you have is because something you cherish is being threatened. I would even say every time you get angry, it is because you are defending something that you cherish that you feel is being threatened. We live in constant threat. And simply put, nothing in all of creation is a threat to God. Nothing. He has no anxiety out of threats. Nothing threatens Him. I want you to think about this in three ways. Number one, He is not threatened in His glory. There is no threat to the glory of God. To put it another way, there is nothing in all creation that can rob God of His glory. We, His creatures, can be blinded to His glory... Our ability to see His glory can be kept from us. His glory in our minds and our hearts can be robbed of us, but God's glory cannot be robbed from Him. He is glorious within Himself. Jesus said in John 17, 5, He prayed, Father, glorify me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. The glory of God existed before there was anything to see His glory in the universe. And what that means is God is worthy of our worship. He does not require worship of us because it makes Him more glorious. Worship is required of us because He is worthy of it. Our unbelief takes nothing away from God. He is not hindered by the fact that there are people who do not believe that He exists. He's not more glorious the more people believe. And to put another way, He doesn't profit anything from our obedience. When we obey and we worship Him, He does not gain from that. He does not become more glorious because we acknowledge Him. His glory is never threatened. Secondly, 
God is never threatened in His throne. His throne is never threatened. Yes, in God's sovereign plan, in His good will, He ordained certain beings in His creation. Angels and humans would have the ability to exercise choice. And that included the ultimately the great liar and deceiver, Satan. And so you and I know, if we believe the Bible, that there is this cosmic battle that has been taking place since even before human beings existed. And that cosmic battle, we understand, it is darkness and light. It is evil and good. But church, listen, it's not a real battle. It is complete and utter domination. God is not concerned or afraid. He is not threatened. Satan is not a threat to his throne. It is not a question of how the battle will turn out. Satan has a certain amount of power on this earth in this age because of sin. But that power is limited. And guess who limits it? He only has what God gives him. His throne is not threatened. This is not equals. Duking it out. Seeing who will win. As a matter of fact, Psalm chapter 2, verse 4, says that when God sees the revolts and the rebels against His authority, He laughs. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, and the Lord ridicules them. When God sees authorities that think they are a threat to His throne, His response is to make fun of them. Amen. The threat of Satan is to not, the threat of Satan is not to God's throne or authority. His threat is to us. Our first father and mother chose to follow Satan into seeking independence from God. We are born as rebels. We desire independence from God if we are really, really honest about it. Atheism ultimately is steeped in a desire to be a, your own God. Denying God is ultimately about morality. Wanting to make decisions for yourself. Satan is doomed and his will is to doom everyone he can to the same fate that he has. But God too, God overcame that as well. Colossians 2.15 says, God canceled the record of debt that stood against us, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. The rulers and the authorities that thought they had doomed us in rebellion, Satan himself that thought he had doomed us in rebellion, God overcame all of that on the cross of Jesus. When He nailed Jesus to the cross, He nailed the record of debt that we had against Him, and He put to shame every cosmic ruler and authority that thought they would drag the image bearers of God to hell with them. Anyone who believes upon Jesus will be saved from that fate because God overcame the threat, not the threat 
to Him, but the threat to His image bearers. And He overcame it in Christ for any who believe. And finally, God is unthreatened in His plans. He is unthreatened in His glory, in His throne, and in His plans. You and I, again, we're talking about how are the creatures different from the Creator. You and I, every plan we make is threatened from the moment we make it. It doesn't matter if you're planning to do something two hours from now, two days from now, or two weeks from now. Every plan you make, the moment you make it, it is threatened by circumstances that are outside of your control. That is not so with God. What God purposes will come to pass. There is not a question about that. When God said there is going to be a day where at the throne of Jesus, all the nations and every tribe and language and tongue would gather there and praise Christ as the King, He didn't say, maybe. If they come. He said, it will happen. He has declared the end from the beginning. His plans will come to pass. Psalm 135, the Lord does whatever He pleases in heaven and on earth. Yes, that will rattle our cage. Yes, there will be times where that is going to be the thing that it, it, like we can't understand and grasp because God does what He pleases. Job said in Job 42.2, I know, God, that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted or frustrated. Nothing, nothing frustrates God's plans, not even the will of man. So yes, in God's ordinance of the universe, He chose to allow men to have wills. And yes, we have choices to make. And yes, those choices have consequences. And exactly how God's will and the choice of man meld together is this great theological question that has been deba debated throughout the church age. And honestly, quite unsettled. But Agape, here's the hill I will die on. Our choice never overrules His choice. Ever. Our will never overrules His will. He has supremacy. The meditations of our heart, the decision of our will, our obedience and disobedience are not the deciding factors of life on this earth. Ephesians 1.11 says, It is God who works all things to the counsel of His will. God works all things according to the counsel of His own will. His plans cannot be frustrated. He has supremacy. So what I want us to do is take that theological foundation and understanding there just a few minutes, that was about 20 minutes of facts about God, knowledge of Him. But now I want us to try to lean our heart into that just a little bit in the time that we have left. And I want us to think about how 
understanding the supremacy of God is absolutely practical and transforms us. We want to lift our minds as high as we can. God is eternal. He is self-sufficient. He is unthreatened. We could take any of those things and ponder it for the rest of our life and never get to the depths of it. But we want to raise our thinking a little bit. But we want to lean our hearts into those things. How does understanding what we just talked about in God's supremacy transform us? So a few thoughts. Number one, God is eternal. So unbelief is a sin that leads to death. God is eternal. Life is in Him. Therefore, to not believe God is to sentence yourself to death. Because if you want nothing to do with God, you want nothing to do with the one being in all the universe that can give you life. When that, when that little line comes to an end, when time ceases for you, you were created to step into eternity and to exist for the rest of that expanse. And if you desire life in that expanse, life in eternity, there is only one place to find that life, and it is in God. To dishonor God, to not believe Him, to not honor Him and worship Him, yes, that's a sin, but it is to the destruction of your soul. Because we do not have life within ourselves. We want it. Yes, I know that. Every one of us, we want life in ourselves. We want to create our own, our own life and we want to be our own God and we want to determine things. But that is not how it works. To bend our will to His and to believe upon Jesus is to put faith in the One who can give you life. When you don't believe, it is a death sentence. But when you do believe, it is life eternal. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, look at 2 Timothy chapter 1 for a moment. 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're looking at verses 8 through 10. Here's some instructions to the church. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord Jesus or of me, His prisoner, Paul writing this. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. Paul says, don't be ashamed to talk about the Gospel. Don't be ashamed of the name of Jesus. Because He has saved us. And it wasn't because, like Josh talked about earlier, we did enough good things. His purpose and His grace was given to us in Christ before time began. And now Jesus has made it evident. He has abolished death. And to anyone who believes, there is life and immortality. 
So God is supreme. Praise Him for that. Because there is life in Him. And He makes His life available to you through Jesus if you believe. That is immensely practical and the most critical thing there is about life. Secondly, God is self-sufficient. How does that truth transform us? It is God's good pleasure to work through you. God is completely self-sufficient. It is God's good pleasure to work through you. So what am I aiming at there? Listen, what we said earlier, God doesn't need us. I am not needed for your growth in the faith or the salvation of your soul. God does not need me. There's never a time for us to think, I'll tell you what, if I wasn't there, this whole thing would fall apart. No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't all fall apart if I wasn't here. We have responsibility, and what we do has ramifications for one another. But it's all on Christ. He's the shepherd of His church. We're not needed. So why are we here and why do we serve? Because God has ordained not only that we can glorify Him, but that we can bring Him joy. I know we're getting to the end of the message. I don't want you to skip over that. Is it true God doesn't need us? Yes, but that doesn't take us to a place of just going to sit in a corner and say, well, I'm, I'm not worth anything. No, God has ordained you are worth immense value to Him. God has ordained not only to love you, but God has ordained that you and your life and your existence and your obedience can bring Him joy. How does that work for someone who doesn't need us? Guess what? When we start studying God, there will sometimes be more questions than answers. And that's okay. God, as one theologian put it, has, has a voluntary relation to everything He's made. Not a necessary one. His interest in His creatures arises from His sovereign good pleasure. For reasons known only to Himself, God honored man above all beings by creating Him in His own image. This is our only true claim to importance. The most important thing about you is that you were made in the image of the Creator. It's the most important thing about you. And God, according to Isaiah 62, has chosen to rejoice over you. In Zephaniah, it is says He rejoices over you with loud singing. God sings over His people. Have you ever been so... So delighted in something that you just burst out in song. The Bible says God does that about His people. Yes, He's self-sufficient. He has no needs. Isn't it a greater thing to believe that He didn't create us, create us because He needed us. He created us because He wanted to. It was His good pleasure to create us in His image. And to give us life. And that we can bring joy to His heart. And then how is God being unthreatened? How does that help us? How does that transform us? All right, so remember three things. We said God is unthreatened in His glory. Worship is not only a command, it's a gift. God is unthreatened in His glory. Worship is not only a command, it is a gift. 
So think about it. Think about worship in the way that we typically think about it. Coming to a church, coming to a place, singing songs, raising your hands, bowing down, doing those things. Are we commanded to do that? Yes. Those who refuse to worship God, they dishonor Him. That, that is absolutely a sin. But it's a gift to get to worship God. Okay, listen. Existence in the universe. To exist and have the ability to see and know God and worship Him is a gift. I know life is hard at times. I know there are things for us to focus on and be frustrated at. I know that there's so much futility in the world that some people get to the point where they say, I don't even know why I'm here. I don't even know that I want to be here. Church, to exist in this universe created in the image of God and to have the gift of being able to see His revealed glory and worship Him. God did that for you. And you may suffer, and you may have trials, and you may go through hard times, but He has given you the gift of life, and if you trust in Jesus, there is coming a day where everything that has frustrated you will be gone, and for the expanse of eternity, you will exist with your Lord, and you will have joy in Him. We worship because of that. God is unthreatened in His throne. How does that help us? Your life is not decided by chance. It is ordered by the reigning God. He is not threatened in His authority. Sometimes when we go through a lot of pain, when we go through difficulty, when we suffer... What we want to do is we want to find some theological way to take God's authority off of that. To say that He has authority over certain things and He's over here. I'm suffering because Satan has that authority or Satan has attacked. Or And listen, sometimes those things are true, but... But God in the Bible doesn't give us the place to remove His authority from our suffering. Your life is not decided by chance. What has happened to you and will happen to you, it's not up to fate. The Lord reigns. And He reigns over every second of your life. Psalm 31.15, David, who suffered a lot in his pursuit of God, says that the course of my life is in your power. Or another translation says, the time, my, the time of my life is in your hands. And he goes on to pray, rescue me from the power of my enemies and from my persecutors. 
I have met people who are Christians who it makes them feel better to believe that God is separated from their suffering and not in control. Agape, I put before you that there is much more comfort in believing that God is never out of control. Nothing touches you without His permission. Nothing happens to you without His okay. And I know that brings up questions. Take those questions to Him. Don't run from Him with those questions. Believe that there is a purpose in a God who loves you for what you're going through. And seek Him for that. And take comfort in knowing nothing that is happening to you is wasted. He is a good Father. He's a good Father. Trust Him. Finally, He is unthreatened in His plans. So labor with discipline as if it all depended on Him. He is unthreatened in His plans. So labor with discipline as if it all depended on Him. Let me get you to look at one more passage of Scripture to wrap up. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9. I'll probably read through 12. So Paul is telling the church in Colossae that he's been praying for them, and now he tells them what he's been praying for. We are praying, we are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So pause there. Let me just say that it's a terrific summary statement of what we're trying to do in this series. We want to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. We want to have wisdom and spiritual understanding. Let me get you to think one more thing. What does the knowledge that God's will shall be done and nothing can undo it, that His plans are not threatened, that whatever He has purposed will come to pass, what does that lead you to do? It should not lead to paralysis. It should not lead you to say, well, God's going to do whatever He's going to do, so I'll just sit down. I don't have to witness. I don't have to share Jesus. I don't have to worship. I don't have to obey. That is not where knowledge of the will of God leads us. Look. Paul says, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that, okay, that word, that phrase, so that, He's about to tell us why He wants us to be filled with the knowledge of the will of God. So that you may walk worthy of the Lord. So that you may walk fully pleasing to Him. So that you may bear fruit in every good work. So that you may grow in the knowledge of God. So that you will be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. So that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father. All of that, you can meditate on it for the entire week. All of that is a product of knowing that God is in control. It does not lead a Christ follower to paralysis, to sit down. It leads us 
to faithful labor with discipline. What Josh talked about earlier, wanting to receive a reward one day. Discipline your life to spend time with God, to pray, to read His Word, to obey, to be in community, to encourage each other, to share Jesus with people. Discipline yourself. Is discipline hard? Absolutely. That's what makes it discipline. But we do that based on the knowledge of the will of God. the end. I want to ask the worship team to come up. I literally do not have an ending. I'm not going to direct you this morning. I'm not going to give you some thoughts about what you can do. I'm not going to give you some suggestions There's going to be some prayer partners to my left. I want to end asking you to do what I started asking you to do. I know there's a lot of activity. I know we got places to go and be. I know there's a fellowship meal in a few minutes. I get all of that. But the greatest thing the people of God can do when they receive from God is respond to Him. That's my invitation to you. Respond to God. What does it look like understanding His supremacy in all things? What does it look like for what He has spoken to you about this morning to respond to Him? Do that. Don't don't just wait until you leave here Incline your heart to His knowledge. Incline your heart to what He is revealing about Himself. Incline your heart to His supremacy. And do whatever He asks. Father, it is the most foolish thing to talk about You when there is no category of understanding of who You are. And I know that I have done that in an imperfect way. But it is the desire of my heart, God, to not just know things about You, but to increase in knowledge and understanding and wisdom. And it's the desire of my heart to pastor and preach in a way to help others do the same. So this morning, I pray that You would reveal to us Your glory in the face of Jesus. It is only Christ that makes it possible for us to know You. This morning, I pray that we would turn from any unbelief, any way in which we don't honor You, that our thoughts about You would be lifted high. And that You would transform our hearts. God, if that means salvation, I pray You would save people today. You would call them to Yourself and they would answer. 
If we are saved, God, but we need the sanctification that comes from lifting our thoughts about You higher. I pray You would give us the faith to do that. God, You have the supremacy. You have created us and given us the gift of life. Let us not take it for granted. Let us honor You and love You. Let us trust You, God. Our life isn't up to chance. You have all authority. No plan of Yours will be thwarted. Let us cling to Christ and abide with Him. We are safe with You. You are a good, good Father. God, change our hearts. Increase our faith. Let us worship You, God, because it is a gift. This morning, if you need to talk about anything related to your relationship with Jesus, before you leave, please come see me, whether now or later. Let's respond to Him. Amen.